English 256. Medical diagnoses on the table here uh, before we started recording. I'm going to start doing this every time. I'm going to start saying, I'm going to start reflecting on what we speak about before I start recording, but not actually talking about it. And just like to pique everybody's interest. Thinking about dropping like little Easter eggs in to the recording. Um, Anyways, okay, so today, like, if you listen to the recording for Monday, you know that this week, right, we're doing what I'm calling on the syllabus traditional stories, okay? So stories that kind of, like, um, different types or genres of stories, different kinds of literature that we really uh, strongly associate with Native American peoples, right? So the first one was an origin story. Of course, all cultures have origin stories, but we tend to understand Native American origin stories as, like, these really important foundational documents for our understanding of those cultures. That's what we read on Monday. And we talk about those as kind of religious texts, uh, if you listen to the podcast. Today, we're talking not about origin stories. We're talking about kind of a story of confederation, something like a story about not the origins of a people, right? It's not another thing we talk about on Monday. Not the origins of a people, that is to say, not the origins of an ethnicity or something, but the origins of something like a nation, the origins of a political formation. That's what we're talking about today. And then on Friday, we're doing kind of folk tales, so like talking animals and, and, and morals and values, things that you may have gotten out of like Aesop or something, but that have like functional equivalents in Native American society as well. And whereas the origin story is like a religious document, the confederation story is something like a political document, the, the folk tale is something like a social document, right? And so those are the three documents that we're talking about this week. And then the next couple of weeks, we're going to go into some more historical literature, right? Pre-20th century literature. Next week, an autobiography from the early 19th century. And then the week after that, um, some discussion of uh, school and educational practices in the late 19th century among Native American boarding schools. So that's where we've been and kind of where we're going. Any questions about that? So the point here today is to give you a sense of the kind of confederation story as a genre or a type of native literature. And there's a lot of these over like the vast expanse of indigenous culture in North America, but the one that we're reading, or the one that we read for today, of course, is centrally located right where we are. So like those of you from upstate may have like lighted on a location or something and known of it, like Canandaigua Lake or Lake Ontario or like Cohoes, New York or Onondaga Lake, or Syracuse, or the Tully Lakes, or any of those, or like up near Messina, which is like the frigid north country, up near the Canadian border, right? Any of those ideas, um, or any of those places, you might have lighted on and been like, oh, I know where that is, or I've driven by it, or I live close to there. The idea here is to give you a sense of this type of story, but to particularize it to this very particular place that we are living in right now, and that we that we occupy. So I brought up this slide, and I'll post it um, on Blackboard too, just to give you a sense of like geographically, spatially, what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is also called the Iroquois, right? The Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Iroquois are made up of now six, but at the time of like this happening, five tribes, right? There are five warring tribes, okay? And they come together and unify in this confederacy, and the confederacy basically makes up all of upstate New York. Right, so if you see on the map, the Mohawks are kind of up near Albany, what we would call like Eastern New York, like the capital region and the Hudson Valley, that kind of thing. The Oneida are, um, you know, kind of present day like, I don't know, Utica, Rome, that kind of area. And then we keep moving west 
right? West. Yeah, we keep moving west and we hit the Onondagas, uh, centrally located just south of Syracuse and just, just north of Cortland. Kind of equidistant from Syracuse and Cortland is the Onondaga Nation. But the Lake Onondaga, which is Onondaga Lake, which is in Syracuse, is really important to the Onondagas and to the Confederacy in general. It's the seat of the Confederacy. And as you keep moving west, you get to the Cayugas, which is like Finger Lakey, uh, Auburn, uh, all those little places that you go to and drink some wine, and then you go to the next one, and then you drink a little bit more wine, that kind of stuff, like the Finger Lakes. Not to, not to dismiss the Finger Lakes. They're wonderful, beautiful. But that's a Cayuga. And then the Seneca is mostly like Western New York. So Rochester and Buffalo, and down into the southern tier, southern western tier. So that's what we're looking at here. That's the kind of like geography of the story that's being told here. And what's so interesting to me is that, or one of the things that's interesting to me is that the um, map here can be connected quite explicitly to this wampum belt. So we haven't really talked about wampum belts too much, although you got the origin of them in the story that you read for today. Right, Hiawatha takes the, shell, takes the, uh, the shells from the bottom of the lake, he carves them, he strings them up. This is a wampum belt in the kind of way that Hiawatha does it, and this wampum belt is actually called the Hiawatha belt. This wampum belt in belt form, like right, in the beads and in the design of them, tells the story that you just read. Right? If you know this story and you know how to read this belt, what this belt provides for you is the kind of script that allows you to tell the story that you just read. Does that make sense? You just read 15 pages to get this story. Somebody who knows this story and has learned it orally, like has been, has it, it's been told to them over and over again throughout the course of their life, they can look at this belt, and from this belt, they get this story. Okay. What's the relationship between the belt and the map? Just at a physical level, what do you see? What, what similarities do they have? What do you think these different shapes mean on this belt? The different tribes. Yeah, right, exactly. The different tribes, right? The different kind of um, native nations of upstate New York that make up the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So just like on the map, we have the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. All right, so those are the shapes. What about the lines between them? What do you think those symbolize? Yeah, precisely, yeah. Connecting them together, like in a confederacy, right? Connecting together the different tribes in a confederacy from east to west or west to east. Precisely. Uh, why do you think that the lines extend beyond the edges of the belts? You can imagine a belt like this that provides you or symbolizes something like unity or confederacy where the lines end at Mohawk and the lines end at Seneca. But on this belt, and not all iterations or replicas of the Hiawatha belt, those, line, those lines extend beyond Mohawk and Seneca. Why would that be? To allow more tribes to connect with them. Precisely it. So this idea, the line that's connecting, is of course the, the, the idea of peace and power and righteousness, right? It's the, all of the ideas embodied in, in what we read is called the Great Law. Right? These ideas are embodied in these lines. And the whole point of the peacemaker's message, the whole point of Hiawatha's message, is that anyone can join. Right? That like, if you accept this message, you can become part of this broader 
confederacy, right? So the idea here is that the lines don't stop at the edges of kind of present-day Iroquois. The lines don't stop at the confederacy. They keep continue onward to the east, to the west, or it's like symbolically to everywhere, right? Everyone can join, too. Questions about that? Just trying to teach you or show you how this belt, if you know how to read it, tells basically this story. Right? So we have the shapes, we have the lines, we have the idea of the lines extending outward. What about this one? Why is the Onondaga one a different shape? This is kind of obliquely referenced in the story, but not fully discussed. So what does that look like? A tree. Yeah, it is a tree, right? Um, in most understandings of this belt and in most understandings of the story, this is a tree. It can also symbolize a fire, though. Right, the Onondagas are, un, are called the keepers of the central fire. They are the seat of government of the Haudenosaunee is at Onondaga, right on the shores of Onondaga Lake. Right, so the idea is that they're either the keepers of the central fire or this is the great tree of peace that's written about in the story as well. This is the great white tree of peace that is erected to memorialize the Confederacy. All of the weapons are thrown under the great tree of peace, right, that idea. So the Anadogas have their own special shape because they are the kind of like the leaders in that way of the entire Confederacy. So this is important not just to kind of orient you to the place and to the story and how it works. It also is important for something we're going to get to later, which is the relationship between words and actions. Words and their material equivalents in this text. So if we think about the words of the story, finding tangible or material expression in this belt, that should make you think about or help you think about one of the really prominent ideas that comes out of this story again and again, which is that we have to grasp onto words. We have to hold words. We have to prove that our words mean something through tangible action. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. That's a huge idea, a really important idea that comes out of this text. But we should start with fucking Jesus. Always Jesus. No disrespect. No disrespect to Jesus. we got to start with Jesus. Everybody wants to talk about Jesus. Shit. So much Jesus. What? Why does everybody want to talk about Jesus with this text? Can we talk about some of the similarities between this and Christianity? Yeah, okay. Um, I just noticed that it had like a lot of parallels and like the way that the story was told where um, like the peacemaker was going through like kind of like uh, would you like would you say like forgiving yeah. kind of or like spreading a message of peace. Yeah. yeah. Um like that I felt like was super similar to like the story Yeah. Definitely a parallel between the role and mission of Christ and the role and mission of the peacemaker, that parallel is that both are kind of like spreading what in the Christian context we might call a gospel, right? But they're spreading a message of peace. Yeah, totally. Um, what was the joke you made in the post? I laughed out loud at it. Maybe it wasn't even intended as a joke. But you said something about how like uh, the peacemaker's way of spreading the message and proving his point was a lot more efficient. Oh, um, like, <laughs> like how Jesus had to kind of die yeah, to yeah, like yeah. prove that he was 
um, like sent by God, and the peacemaker, all he had to do was have like a boat. Yeah, he had to like make a stone canoe float and survive a night in the woods after he got a, a tree chopped down. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, Jesus had to die and resurrect himself to prove it. And the peacemaker, I don't know, I just thought that was funny. I laughed out loud when I read this one. In any case, that's one similarity. What else? Between, like, the peacemaker and, and Jesus. Born a virgin, a virgin mother, right? Spreading the idea of peace. What else? Any others? Both sent from, like, a higher source. Yeah. Both sent from something like a god, right? In order to do this work in this world, right? Um, so not kind of like a, a message that they send of their own volition, right? But a message that they send on account of a higher power. Totally. Great, similarities. Why is that important? What does it mean to us? What does it suggest, historically or culturally? I want to talk through this because there's so much of this at the beginning of this class, necessarily so. There's so much like, oh, this reminds me of basically a Western paradigm. This reminds me of Christianity. This reminds me of something I'm familiar with. Why is it important to make those claims, to express those similarities? What do they suggest? Yeah. Um, for me, it was just a little like surprising that they were so similar because like Native Americans were treated like savages for like a very long time. But like when it comes down to it, their religion. Like, I don't know, I feel like that's always like the thing that like ties people together. Christians are coming upon native peoples and they don't understand them, but they hear their origin stories or they hear their stories of confederation and there's like a lot of ideas that actually resonate that seem similar, right? Why wouldn't it be an impetus toward like peace and acceptance as opposed to the opposite, which is actually what happened? Anybody have an answer to that? Like if early settlers like understood that there were potentially like points of similarity between the beliefs and teachings of Christians and the beliefs and teachings of native people, why wouldn't that be a, a place where like uh, the settlers would be like, oh yeah, you, we're cool with you. Any thoughts? I mean, tough to say, it's historical speculation, but the idea here would be that like, of course they're motivated by different desires, uh, acquisitive ones in many cases, but two, right, this actually happens in history. There are people in like the 17th century and the 18th century who learn these stories, who learn these native origin stories, they learn these native stories of confederation, and they do see the resonances, and they write about those similarities, and what they say is not like, oh, these people, it's cool, we shouldn't try to convert them because they already have a kind of belief system that is like ours. In fact, what they do is they say, hey, the peacemaker's kind of like Jesus. That means they're going to accept Jesus even more easily, right? So it actually provides an impetus or a catalyst for further conversion and missionization, the similarities between them. What else? What do we, that's a really good point. What else do we make of these similarities? Why are they, what do they show us? They show us the influence of Christianity on native stories. We can't discount that. We want to understand cultures as um, discrete, separate from one another. But in fact, no culture is. All of these things bleed together. 
right? There's no discrete and separate culture. So it's totally fine that native cultures have Christian influences. It doesn't mean they're not native, right? That would be a really, really narrowing and harsh definition of culture. Right? It doesn't mean they're not native. It just means that this culture has been adapted to or modified by Christian beliefs. That doesn't mean it's less than native, right? So I want to kind of disabuse all of you of this notion. It's not that's not necessarily what's coming through in any of the posts, but the kind of insistent move back to, oh, this reminds me of Jesus. On one level, it's really instructive and notable and useful, but on another level, we have to constantly push and we have to say, okay, maybe, yes, definitely, but what's the point? Right? The point is not in those moments to say it's less native. The point might be, oh yeah, historical connections happen on account of colonization. Another point, though, it comes out of Cat's post as well. Like, you said at the end of your post that, like, there's a tremendous diversity of religions in the world, but when you boil it right down, it all seems to be the same story with like different scattered details, right? And that is quite true, right? That is quite true. And so the other thing we want to think of here is that like, yeah, there might be similarities, a virgin birth or something, between the peacemaker and Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily mean that one was influenced by the other. It could also mean that they evolved separately from one another but that all religions, right, all of these big worldly ideas are flowing from the same place, right? They're all trying to answer the same question, right? What happens to us when we die? How do we live right? How was the world created? All of these ideas, like, they're coming to everyone at the same time, right? And the answers that we have to them, the answers that different cultures have to them, um, sometimes they pull from the same, like, basket of ideas. And it just so happens, potentially coincidentally, that two cultures or religions pull something quite similar from that same basket. Does that make sense? Right. These things can happen, these things can evolve independent of one another, and the similarities can be essentially coincidental as well. One other distinction between something like the Peacemaker story and something like Jesus is that the Jesus story, like the, the Christian story of Jesus, is predominantly and um, purposefully a religious story. This is not really a religious story, right? This is a story that has kind of like spiritual elements, but essentially, predominantly, this is a political story. And that distinction is really important as well. Right? This is not really a religious story. This is a political one. That's a distinction that's really other thoughts about this relation between Christianity and this story, or Jesus and the peacemaker? Okay, I just want to get that on the table because it's actually going to recede from view a little bit for us, but not until after next week where we actually read the story of a Christianized native, a native person who like finds himself through Christianity. And what you're going to ask yourself is you're going to be like, ah, and necessarily so, understandably so. You're going to ask yourself, like, oh, is he losing some of his native identity on account of being Christian? Because that's a natural reflection. We want to think of these two cultures as distinct and separate from one another, when in fact they're not, right? The history of colonization means that we can't extricate native culture from Christian culture. Right? We just can't do that. And so, like, the desire to separate is one that we need to push back against. Okay? All right, so that's the big one. Uh, so, who are the Haudenosaunee, where we started, what's up with Jesus, 
Why so much Jesus talk? <laughs> I like Jesus. It's great, but like, but 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 so much Jesus talk. Okay, what about this idea of words and forms? Sam, you mentioned this in your post. All right, let me just go back to the post a little bit. And, and you said in your post that one point that you made in your post is that it was notable or interesting to you that the message, whenever there's a message in the story, it's only true when it's given a form. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so Peacemaker was telling everyone about how they don't need to worry anymore, there will be peace. And these people are like, okay, but we will believe you once, you know, we see it, just like how we're talking with Jesus. Like in this case, he is saying there will be a long house where all these tribes will live under with one common law, and then there will be peace. There will be no more violence between them. So in that case, right, the form is the longhouse, but there's plenty of forms that happen over and over and over again when different groups ask the peacemaker for, like, the form of the words. There's a bunch of different forms that those words take. So they take the form of the longhouse, but they take the form of others as well. So I want to kind of point to a couple of different examples here, all right? So the first one is on page 16. If you have it, it's okay if you don't. Actually, the first one's on 14. So this is with Jigon Sase, who's the, the woman who uh, the peacemaker meets in Huron country, and she becomes a really important figure. We might talk about women's power a little bit later too, but this is on 14. Um, Thy message is good, she's saying to the peacemaker, said the woman, but a word is nothing until it is given form and set to work in the world. What form shall this message take when it comes to dwell among men? And as Sam is telling us, it will take the form of the longhouse. Okay, so what word, what form will the message take? Peacemaker says it will take the form of the longhouse. He explains what the longhouse is, why it matters, and then Jigan Sase says, that is indeed a good message. I take hold of it. I embrace it. What's important about the language of that? I take hold of it. You'll notice over the course of this story, the idea of holding words, grasping them, or embracing them recurs over and over and over again. What's the importance of that language? I take hold of it. I embrace it. Or what's kind of paradoxical about it? It's a very physical sense of holding on to something, yeah. even though it's just words. Yeah, it's a good message. Okay, a message. I take hold of it, I embrace it. We usually think of something like a word or a message as an immaterial presence. Okay? Right? A word or a message generally understood is an immaterial presence. And so for Jigon Sase and for so many people in this text to say, I take hold of that word, I embrace it, what that suggests to you is what? About the importance of material, having material presence for the word. Why is that so important? I take hold of the message. I embrace it. Why would that be so critical? What does it do? I mean, you kind of talk about this, Andre, in your post. You say, like, over the course of the text, pot, the peacemaker has to prove himself over and over and over again, right? He has to take actions that prove that his words are legitimate. Like he has to go up into the top of the tree and then they have to cut it down and then he has to survive a night, that kind of stuff. You have to prove it. So what does that reveal to us? What's inadequate about words? What's inadequate about messages? Just on their own. 
kind of like that saying, actions speak louder than words. Yeah, it's precisely that. I mean, this is a, like going back to this idea that like all of these cultures have these like really big touchstones that their stories think through. This is exactly that. Message, actions speak louder than words. What we're saying here is that words can only take us so far, right? Messages that are immaterial can only take us so far. Now let's dig into this idea of actions speak louder than words. What does that mean? Like, why is that such a cliche in our culture? Why do actions speak louder than words? You can say whatever you want, but unless you prove it, you know, like, it's not as meaningful to hear something as it is to see it. Right, it's really easy to spout off, right? It's really easy to say you're going to do something. It's much harder to actually take that action, okay? And so that's the idea that's coming through here. And it's not just coming through, again, as a platitude, as actions speak louder than words. It's also coming through as this idea that words have to take material form in order for them to be true. Words have to take material form in order for them to be true. A really important contribution from the story. There's a couple of other examples. I just want to point them out to get you thinking through this pattern. And in fact, whenever you're reading any literature, some of you know this already, but whenever you're reading any literature, if you notice patterns, right, that should be a light bulb going off in your head and saying, hmm, that's probably important, right? That's probably something that I can interpret or analyze. The author's probably trying to tell me something. When something recurs over and over and over and over again, it's a pattern that you should be lighting on and saying, why does this matter? Why is this here? So there's page 14, but there's also Page 19, this is one that Andres, I think, talked about in the post. Um, when the peacemaker is with the Mohawks and the chief warrior says, what this man says is good, okay, but is it true? Let him give us a sign. Let him climb to the top of a tall tree by the, by the falls, and we shall cut it down over the cliff. If he live to see the sunrise, we shall accept his message. So I'll move to the place where the tree stood beside the falls. If thou livest to see tomorrow's sunrise, said the chief warrior, we shall take hold of thy message. Okay, again, this moment where the message or the word is one thing, but the action is what's really important. And when the action is done, that's when truth happens. That's when you take hold of the word. So if you go down a little bit further on that page, right, the chief warrior spoke yesterday. He said, I was in great doubt for words, however good, do not always betoken the thing that is. What does that mean? But words, however good, do not always betoken the thing that is. Like you could be deceived by words? Yeah. Sweet words can be lies, right? They can be deceptive. They can just be passive and not meant to kind of signal or spur action, right? So what the chief warrior is telling us here is like, the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, have a profound distrust of words if they are not embedded in acts, if they do not have material correlatives. And I talk about all this with this belt behind me purposefully, right? Because literally this is the material correlative to the words of the story, right? This, for the Haudenosaunee, this belt is just as important, if not more so, than the words themselves, right? So the words are only important and they're only truthful if they have material correlatives. And this, for the Haudenosaunee, is the material correlative. This is literally what you can take hold of. 
you can grasp this. This is the truth. Okay? A couple more examples, and then I kind of want to turn us to something that's related to this. So, uh, page 21, when Hiawatha is learning to console himself with the wampum, right? He develops wampum strings and he learns to console himself after uh, Adataro has killed his family, okay? He says at the top of 21, and then over and over again, this insistent pattern, he says, I would take these shell strings in my hand and console them. The strings would the strings would become words and lift away the darkness with which they are covered. Holding these in my hand, my words would be true. Again, this is just such an insistent pattern in this story. And once you start thinking about it, it happens on almost every page. Holding these in my hand, my words would be true. Okay? Only when you have the wampum in your hand do the words become truthful. Okay? the material correlative to the words makes them true, okay? Another example, 24, near the end of the text. Um, when Hiawatha is talking to uh, Adataraho, these are the words of the great law. On these words, again, words as a physical presence, literally as the foundation, on the words. On these words we shall build the house of peace. So like words are literally the foundation of the house. They are a physical presence. The long house with five fires that is yet one household. These are the words of righteousness and health and power. Okay? Again, over and over and over again in this text, there's an insistence on the idea that words have to have a physical presence. They have to have a material correlative in order to be truthful. Okay, but, but this is kind of... This might provoke in you, given what we've talked about for so many weeks already, this might provoke in you a little bit of a confusion, right? Because what have we said through King, the first book we read, what have we said about native cultures, right? If we understand how native cultures traditionally express themselves, how do they? Do they usually express themselves, traditionally speaking, through words? Do they usually express themselves, traditionally speaking, through writing, through material forms? Or do they usually express themselves through speaking, through oral forms? Speaking. Yeah, we understand at a kind of like base and stereotypical level that native cultures are predominantly oral cultures. Right? This is an idea that we have. This is an idea that King tries to complicate. And in the class, I don't remember what day of the week it was, but that we tried to complicate in class as well through those slides of showing you different native writing systems. But this kind of flies in the face of that a little bit, doesn't it? Can anybody speak through that? Right? If we think of like native culture as predominantly oral, what's the emphasis in this text? It's not really on speech. In fact, this text tells us that there's a problem with speech. So what's the deal? What do we make of that? Again, if we think of native cultures as predominantly oral, but this story, right, a really foundational text, is really, really doubtful of words. What do you make of that? Kind of seems like there were a lot of bridges burned between everyone. So it kind of had to make up for what was already lost. So if we're in a position, that's a cool thought, John. So if we're in a position where um, we are in an environment of distrust, right, where there's violence and distrust, words are not enough, speech is not enough, you actually have to have action. Right, so that's the moment when speech is not enough. That's a cool idea. Yeah, so when we get into crisis, speech is not enough. Right, we need words. What else? 
just asking you to think about like the connection between this story and the idea, the stereotype we have about native peoples as predominantly oral. I mean, what, what it might suggest to us is this idea, this stereotype we have of native peoples as being predominantly oral is not really a fair one, and it doesn't have really a historical grounding. Right? The idea here is that from the kind of foundation of this native culture, from the foundation of the Haudenosaunee, they had a profound distrust in words that did not also have physical forms. Right? Words are not enough. They never have been, even for native people. And so this idea, again, the stereotype that we have of native cultures being predominantly or solely oral is really not true in many respects. The Haudenosaunee have a material foundation for their speech. It's just wampum. It doesn't look like the type of writing that, quote unquote, we have. But it's still a material correlative to speech, right? And they've had it forever. They've had it since their founding documents. So what this document should show you is that, again, the stereotype we have of native communities as solely oral is really not a true one. Really, what we, should, what we should be thinking about is that Native communities, just like Western communities, have on one level a profound distrust of speech, but also recognize the importance of it, and put a lot of trust in the idea that you back up your speech with action, or that you back up your speech with material, physical presence. Only when you back up that speech with material or physical presence do you have truth, and trust, and peace, the idea here. Any other thoughts on that? Questions about holding words. Such an important concept in this story, one that recurs over and over again, but if you're not attuned to that language, you might just miss it. Right? I grasp that message, I hold that message. Really crucial to this text. Yeah? So would you say like this story would be more realistic to King's book because that was more of what they wanted us to see? More realistic in what way? What do you mean by more realistic in King's book? Like, I feel like even, I don't know, like, word, like words don't, like we already talked about, like words don't mean anything unless you have something to back it up, yeah. where these people were like, this is, this is life, like we really have to look into it to see if it is true. Yeah. Where King was like, still like taking pictures of people and making them look like how they he wanted us to see them and portray that story. Oh, interesting. Okay, so like so the idea here is that like is this story more realistic? Like does is it more kind of like attuned to the realities of yeah. life than something like King portrays to us? Yeah. I think it's more realistic than a lot of the stories that King tells like of Edward Curtis or something, the photographer, like all of those stories, this is certainly more realistic than that. But I actually think, if you're just thinking about how King writes and some of the ideas that he has, I think that this text and King's text actually really nicely align together. Because King is invested in the written word. He's invested in a material correlative to speech. Really invested in it, right? He's a craftsman of writing. He's thinking about how to put that speech into a form on the page that is trustworthy. Right? He's actually really, really consciously thinking of that. All of his direct address, all of his attempts to familiarize himself to you, these are all attempts to become trustworthy to you. Right? And so he's actually thinking, I think, in many senses, right along with this story. 
right? He's actually showing us, not in so many words, but he's actually showing us the same idea, is that just speech is not enough. You also have to have that material or physical presence. But some of the stories he tells in the book, yeah, they fall flat in comparison to this one. Right? For sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Again, it always brings back to, it always like centers on the language of the text. Right? What King is doing, what the strategy is, what words are being used in this text. That kind of stuff. Yeah? Why did it say in the story that like um, the peacemaker didn't want to travel north because there was like death or something? So there's, in a lot of native cultures, a... Um, connection between the cardinal direction of north and blackness and death, right? And you can kind of understand that probably spiritually in a lot of different ways. But if we want to kind of like break it down to its barest bones, most simplistic understandings, why would, if you are a people who are situated in upstate New York, why would you equate going north with death. Cold. It's really fucking cold. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, there are bigger reasons, right? But these bigger spiritual reasons come out of a situatedness on the land. That's really what indigeneity is, right? These ideas come out of the land, right? And so there is, like, a more complex answer, answer to that, which I can't speak to because I'm not Haudenosaunee, but, like, the, the, the base of that, the, the, like, the, the foundation of it, is that kind of really situated in place-based understanding that like if you go north, it's really cold, you're probably gonna die. Yeah. But that recurs in so many different native stories. That actually is in the Navajo story too, right? And the creation story that we read from Monday. Okay, last thing that we have about 10 minutes, I wanna talk about the role and status of women. And then maybe also about the US Constitution. Who mentioned that? Somebody mentioned, maybe it was somebody who's taking the class online. Uh, yeah, Rachel. Rachel mentioned this. She actually mentioned both these ideas, the role and status and power of women in this story and also the influence of this story on the development of the U.S. Constitution. Has anybody heard that idea that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is actually like a um, historical precursor to the U.S. Constitution? You've heard this story? Yeah. yeah, this comes through. Do you remember where you heard it? It was one of my elementary school teachers that mentioned it. Yep. She talked about it for a little bit. Yeah, this comes into our um, secondary ed or, or our primary ed, principally through like teachers that might consider themselves a little more progressive, right, when they're talking about Native American history or even when they're talking about American history. The idea here is that in the 1750s, Ben Franklin writes a couple of sentences to a person that he's writing a letter to, and he says, hey, if these, he literally uses the term, hey, if these ignorant savages, all five of these nations can get together and unify and become peaceable, why can't 10 or 11 colonies do it as well? Like that's in a letter of Ben Franklin's from the, from the 1750s. And that piece of evidence is used to suggest that you know when we get into the 1770s and 1780s, Ben Franklin and the other founding fathers have in the back of their head the model of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy as the model for the United States, okay? That's a thin piece of evidence to read that big claim on, but it's a thing that people say, right? That, that like the Haudenosaunee Confederacy served as a model for the development of the United States. And it comes out of that couple of lines that Ben Franklin writes in a letter about 20 years previous. 
So setting aside whether or not that's true, it's an interesting ideological point. Why would people say that? That's still something that you hear even from native communities today in Haudenosaunee country, that the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is a model for the United States. Why would Haudenosaunee people be invested in saying that? Like what power or authority does that give? Like that this confederacy is a model for the United States. Their influence on our country. Yeah. Like how their importance compared to where we where we some people have put them throughout time. Right. What it suggests is that like the Haudenosaunee prior to the development of the United States had a model of governance, right? Had a political structure and a political system that was advanced beyond that of the West. So much so that the West, the colonists, looked to the Haudenosaunee in order to model their government on it. Right? So that's a powerful claim to authority or power or like civilization in the face of consistent and insistent claims of savagery or uncivilizedness. Right? So there's powerful ideological work that happens with that claim. And it's still one that you hear today. Right? And there is some truth to it, although probably not, as mu not so much that we could actually say with any definitiveness that like, this is the model for the United States. One thing, though, and this is in our last five minutes we should focus on a little bit, one thing that is clearly more advanced or progressive as it concerns the Haudenosaunee governance structure than the governance structure of the United States is the role and power of women. So Jigon Sase, who's that first character that the peacemaker meets, what is her role in this text? What happens to her? What does she symbolize? Anybody pick up on this? It's like uh, really early in the text, right around 14. Anybody remember what Jigon Sase symbolizes? Or what she... Um, represents for the Haudenosaunee. 14. Now it shall come to pass in that longhouse, said the peacemaker, that women shall possess the titles of chiefship. They shall name the chiefs. That is because thou, my mother, were the first to accept the good news of peace and power. Okay? The women shall possess the titles of chiefship. They shall name the chiefs. What does that mean? The women are not the chiefs themselves, but what does it mean to possess the titles and to name the chiefs? They can choose who is um, a chief. Yeah, and this actually still happens today in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, is that the clan mothers, they don't name them like they give them a name, although they do that too. They literally choose who the chiefs are. Right? The women in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy choose the leaders of the nation. That is their role and responsibility. What does that suggest about the power of women in Haudenosaunee society? Haudenosaunee governance. If they choose the chiefs, what's their power? They hold a high position. Yeah, they hold a really high position. They're just kind of in the background, right? Yeah. They're actually really, really crucial to the functioning of Haudenosaunee governance, but they are in the background. The chiefs are up front, right? The chiefs are the officials. They are the titled people, but the women hold the titles. That is to say, the women give them by implication, the women can, and they do, freely take them away. 
right? And so even though they work in the background, they still have a profound influence. This gets to something that I think Peyton posted. Yeah, this gets to something that Peyton posted in the, in the forum as well, is that like, it's often the case in many cultures that women hold a lot of power, but the way that they exercise that power is they exercise it in the bathroom, right? They exercise and wield a lot of power, but it's, especially in traditional societies, they are kind of in the background, they recede from view, and yet they have a lot of authority over particular matters. And so that is one thing that's profoundly different about the Haudenosaunee governance structure and let's say the early American one, where of course women were barely people in a legal sense, could not own property, certainly could not vote, for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? So they couldn't even exercise the vote, much less have within them the sole responsibility of choosing leaders. And so even though we might think that the US Constitution is in some respects modeled upon the Haudenosaunee model, if we believe that, um, we have to also say by implication that some of the more progressive values embedded in the Haudenosaunee model were not taken up by the US Constitution either among them some equality between the genders and the role and power of women in society. Any last thoughts on this? Okay, that's all I got for you today. Have a good rest of the day. Be safe, be well. Eat an apple for a Christian. I look like a fish. <laughs> yeah, you too.